0: So I'm sitting there with the phone to my face, and she's like more excited than I am because I have all these people around me, and I'm trying to like zone in, like, okay, who is this? She's like, hi, can I speak to Zane? Da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, uh huh, really? Everything inside me was going, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right. So I kind of got up and walked away, and I was just praising God and I was saying, thank you, Lord, so much.
1: Meet Zane. She's one of 125 people recently chosen to receive $500 a month with no strings attached. This comes as part of a new pilot program testing the concept of universal basic income. It's called the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, also known as SEED. Today on the show, we're bringing you an extended conversation we had with Stockton's mayor, Michael Tubbs. As you're about to hear, he has a fascinating story and has a few thoughts on a similar proposal coming at the national level from 2020 hopeful Andrew Yang. I'm Brian Anderson. You're listening to California Nation. Five, four, three, two, one. We are not going to have a circus here. But well, we just left pleasure Fair for Paris. Can you please hug me? <laughs> <laughs> Do not worry, Dutch is not here today. We we clearly learned our lesson.
0: These are not ordinary times, and this will not be an ordinary election.
1: Mr. Michael Tubbs, thanks for coming on the show. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: So I've got to ask right out of the gate, how did you become the mayor of Stockton? Because you actually have quite a fascinating background, so tell our listeners about that. Yeah.
2: Well, the short answer is uh, I read a really great campaign. Um, but, but the I was going to st-
1: say there's a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: the longer story is I'm born and raised in Stockton. Stockton's home. Uh, my mom she had me when she was in high school, and my father's still incarcerated. So a lot of the issues we're tackling in Stockton, with to do basic income, but there are another other initiatives is very personal for me. Um, I was lucky enough, thanks to my mom, my aunt, and grandmother, to do really well in school and get accepted to Stanford, where I studied for four years, did my masters and bachelors there. And while there, I was able to intern in the Obama White House. My job was to work with mayors and councils, and I actually didn't enjoy the job that much. Um, but I was exposed to how, at a local level, mayors and councils, around 2010, were just moving such so many things and making life better for, for the people in their communities. Around the same time, one of my cousins, Donnell James II, was a victim of a homicide in Stockton. And I think it was the juxtaposition between I was at Google right before the White House, being at Stanford and Google, and the White House, um, so top of the mountain. Um, and then having to deal with just the pain and anger of of losing a loved one to gun violence and also understanding that that narrative of that experience wasn't unique to me, but especially during that time where we were having spikes in in homicides, it was a common experience shared by far too many people, particularly people who looked like me, particularly from people who in neighborhoods like the ones I grew up in. So long story short, I ended up running for city council. I ran for city council was a top vote getter in 2012 during my senior year in college. So I was commuting between Stanford and Stockton campaigning um, one city council spent four years representing the south part of the city, District 6, where I grew up. In that short time, we did a lot of things like closed problem liquor stores, opened up health clinics, pilot community policing models, and I began to be really interested in this idea that we could make change in the south part of the city, which historically has been redlined, marginalized, and underserved, um, but now in 2019, that's not the only place in Southampton that's been underserved and marginalized, so I thought, how much more impact could we make if I ran for mayor? So I decided to run for mayor in 2016. We won the primary, then we won the general election with 72% of the vote. Um, And then on January 1st or 2nd, 2017, I started my term as mayor of Stockton as the first African-American mayor, uh, but also the youngest mayor of a city of more than 100,000 people in in American history.
1: How old are you now and how old were you when you got elected?
2: I'm 29 years old now, Uh, 29 and- The
1: late 20s.
2: Yeah, man. (laughs) Man, yeah. A veteran. It's weird. It's weird yeah. <laughs> that you're not old, but you're not young. It's just weird. Um, so 29 <laughs> years old now, and I was 26 when I won the primary for mayor, um, and yeah, 27 when I started.
1: So I think as a young mayor, you have an openness to new ideas that other mayors might not necessarily have. How did this idea of universal basic income Become a reality and get launched off of the ground.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think to, to your question, it's a it's a function of age, but I also think a function of lived experience. So when we're talking about the issues of poverty or of the working poor or of economic insecurity, like I still viscerally remember being hungry. I remember seeing my mom struggle. I still have to borrow money to give money to, to family members to help them make make ends meet for some, some months. So it's super personal. So I think age, but also combined with Actually, not theorizing or not learning these things at Stanford or learning these things from a briefing, but living these things—I mean, relationships with people who are, are struggling—really um, give me the impatience and, um, to, to not to wait and and, and the courage, I, I guess, to act. Um, so when I first started as mayor, I was convinced that poverty was the crux of all the issues in Stockton. Whether we're talking about homelessness and housing insecurity, whether we're talking violence, we're talking about educational attainment, it's like the issue is one of of poverty. So I had my team of researchers, I said research the most radical interventions to abolish poverty. And they came back with a basic income. And I had learned basic income 10 years prior when I was a freshman in college reading and studying Dr. King, because I think people forget that this concept sounds new, but it's something we've talked about. It's actually been proposed before. We've been talking about it since Thomas Paine in the agrarian revolution, but Dr. King Nixon
1: administration.
2: The socialist Richard Nixon, um, he and Donald Rumsfeld were running basic income pilots. Um, but but Dr. King talked about sort of having a guaranteed minimum income established at the medium. And I remember studying that being very interested by that, by that by that idea and thinking it would be cool one day to be part of that conversation, kind of continue his dream and his legacy. Fast forward, first year as mayor, my team came back with an idea. I said, that's a great idea. I just got elected mayor. I would love to be reelected. So let's, um, let's put this on the back burner.
1: Or at least not have it city funded. Yeah,
2: but I didn't even think philanthropy was option. I said, well, you know, let's put this on the back burner. Maybe second term, be a little more risky. I'll try some things, but I, I, I want to be the first but not the last. I want to make sure, make sure I'm here. Um, and then two weeks later, I ended up being at a conference with a group called the Economic Security Project. And they approached me and said, hey, you know, we're actually thinking about this idea of basic income. Have you heard of it? And I said, "Oh my gosh, I have a task force looking at this issue. We have funding models. We're debating the merits." And I said, "That's awesome because we're looking for a city um, to pilot this on to, to pilot with." And we spent six months in meetings. They came to stock, They met with community groups. Met with my team. Established a community advisory board. Then we decided in October twenty seventeen that we would, we would, we would do it. Um, and luckily for us, it was all philanthropically funded. So,
1: how important was that to you to not have this be taxpayer funded?
2: I think for scale it has to be taxpayer funded, but I also think particularly given Stockton's financial history. We just came out of bankruptcy. Um, we're the second fiscally healthy city in the state, but that doesn't mean we have a lot of money. It means we just don't have as much debt. <laughs> so I'm always very careful with how we use tax dollars. I think um, for something novel, something you're testing, that you want, that's what like I tell people all the time charity and philanthropy is injustice or, or scale, but it can let you test things that you can then scale. So for me, it was important to have an opportunity to, to test it, see what works, see what doesn't work, and then we can make a case to state and national government about the need for, for, for taxpayer dollars for it. So, anywho, we um, decided to, to, to do it together. Um, Economic Security Project um, and other foundations help us provide the funding. And then since February 2019, 125 families from throughout the city. Um, All type of income levels are given $500 a month for the next 18 months on debit cards.
1: Right. And you recently had the researchers who are conducting this look at how people are spending the $500 a month. What did you find?
2: Well, what I found is probably not shocking to you or to the folks listening, is that the folks in the uh, the study are are people, um, like me and like you, Um, like those listening, meaning that they spend money the way people do. Um, So 40% of money was spent on food, Um, another 20% on merchandise. And there can be some
1: overlap, so if you go to Walmart, you you can buy food there, (laughs) so it's hard Uh, to track.
2: Absolutely, Um, and then another 10, 11% was spent on um, utilities. Um, And then I think what might be surprising for people though is that as my working hypothesis proved to be correct is that the issue is not jobs. We're not talking about folks who are unemployed and not working, 40% or 42% of folks in the program a representative sample of the city were working full or part-time, sometimes two jobs. Um, 11% were caregivers, so they're working but not being paid, mostly women. Um, 20% were twenty percent were um, disabled or retired and, and, and not working. Um, and just less than 2% of folks were not working. 11% were looking for work, and 2% were not working and not looking for work. And I think for a lot of people, when they think of economic insecurity, they understand for themselves and their kitchen table conversations that their families are working. They, it's hard for them to pencil out rent, mortgage, utilities, health care, edu- college loans, etc. But I think oftentimes it's lost that with other people who are struggling. It's often the same thing. It's not like they're just waiting for government to give them something. They're working incredibly hard, but work just isn't paying. And I tell folks back home all the time that the issue isn't that people aren't working, the issue is that the economy isn't working for the vast majority of us. when. One in two folks in this country can afford one $400 emergency when productivity has increased 72% between 1973 and 2013, but wages have only increased 9% of that same time. Like, there's something fundamentally broken, I think, for me, this basic income pilot. Uh, more so than just being a panacea, it's really actually forcing the question around the status quo, and number one, why do we allow it? number two, how do we fix it?
1: So I wanna get to some of the concerns that are with this program. Like you you said, 2% of the people aren't seeking work, and I think a lot of people would estimate that number is a lot higher, people who just want free stuff. But what do you say to people who are concerned that this incentivizes not working as hard? Yeah.
2: I would encourage them to look at themselves, because I think, I was just reading a New York magazine article on the way here, and it talked about how we're working harder than we've ever worked before, that folks are putting in a lot of hours, folks are actually harming themselves, like health outcomes are worse and people are working more. Um, And and something as small as $500 isn't enough to replace work.
1: Because the average median income of people in this study was about $1,800, so... $500 $500 is helpful, but it's, it's not it, the end-all, be-all. And
2: what's been fascinating for me in hearing anecdotally is that actually it's allowed people to work smarter, more efficiently, or better. So there's one young man, Tomas, who showed on Saturday with the community that the $500 was enough for him to take a risk, take a day off work to interview for another job, and now he's full-time versus part-time.
0: That $500 just helps to the necessities or the, the, the needs that you do need, like keeping the lights on, water, uh, food, stuff like that.
2: Right, like so, I think. Follow, pe- people want to work. People people want to be productive. If people don't work, it's for a variety of reasons. Either number one, they're working and not being paid, okay, like caregiving. Number two, they face barriers to employment, whether they have some sort of mental illness or disability, or they have an incarceration record. Um, but this idea that we're going to reward people not to work is ridiculous because people are working and working incredibly hard.
1: Is there a potential to expand this program? What happens after the eighteen months expire?
2: So what's, I think for a guaranteed income, income floor to, to work in, in this country, no city can do it at scale. It would have to be a state or national program. And I know a lot of people are playing with proposals using the tax code. So Senator Harris has her Lift America Act and Rep Rashida Tlaib as well, which would give $500 a month for over the course of a year to families in America making a hundred K or less. Um, Governor Newsom just doubled the earned income tax credit to allow cap, which was cash payments <laughs> to right. folks who are working. and we can continue to extend that to cover caregivers independent contractors and undocumented folks who, are, who, who still contribute to our economy. Um, so there's a lot of ways to, to get there and, and to do it. So I think our goal over these 18 months is to number one show that's not scary. That's not an American. Um, that actually has benefits for everyone. It's something that we should do. And then number two, to just call the question. If you, I tell people all the time that it makes no sense to me to be more upset, to be more critical, to have more questions about a potential solution than a status quo that just isn't working and it isn't something that's intractable. It's something we've created with the policy decisions we made, the investments we made um, as the type of world and economy we want to live in. So I think for me, it's using, highlighting the stories of the folks in, in, in the Stockton program to really illustrate that no, we can be better and we deserve better and there's a way to get there. It just takes a little bit of political courage.
1: So the end game isn't a citywide Stockton initiative. The end game is something happening at the California or national level following the 18 months.
2: Absolutely, because so I think, especially in just the letters and emails and texts and Instagram and Facebook posts we, we get from people, it's a pro, it's the economic insecurity is, is, is a problem that's widespread. It's a problem that's in every city. It's a problem that's bipartisan. <laughs> like, Republicans and Democrats are both trying to figure out how to make everything pencil out at the end of the month. So I think um, we're happy, I'm happy to lead the way and show what we should be doing and what we can do. I'm happy to highlight the problem, I think working with our, our friends in, in the Capitals, um, we should be able to come up with something. And understand it's going, to be, it's going to be iterative. We might not get all the way there in one swoop, but we should get closer. Maybe in
1: your co- second term.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, we, but we should get closer and closer and closer um, to having just an income floor uh, for people. I think I ran the same New York Magazine article that the United States has $98 trillion, um, meaning that for every single individual, that's $298,000 uh, um, each And not saying we want to be communists, but saying that there's a ton of resources and wealth generated in this country. And it makes no sense for the poverty, deprivation, and folks struggling to make ends meet. And that's literally a choice.
1: Is there a fear of a dependency on this program for the 125 people? Because they rely on it right now, and you're taking it away from them at month 19. I mean... What do you do
2: about that? Yeah, I think we've been very clear from the beginning with recipients. Well, like, they know what they're getting into. Well, hey, yeah, they're we deep. say we have 18 months, but I think it also goes back to one of the other ethos of the program, this I of trust. And I like, said these folks who are adults, and, and, and like, hey, you have 18 months. I trust you to make this $6,000 over 18 months work and go and go go further for you. So that's why I think stories like Tomas's, where. Folks are leveraging it to actually position themselves for, for better pay or leveraging it for down payment assistance so they could get to a house so they could afford the rent without the $500 but they may need a couple of months of the $500 to pay for the down payment or pay the security deposit. And we're hearing stories and stories of that. Are folks understanding to use it for one-time things or to save it or to use it to cut? Like one lady talked about how after in the program she had was able to get her dentures a one-time cost because she probably had money to do it. So so I think a lot of folks understand they have 18 months, they have $6,000 to make the decisions needed to make um, to put themselves in a better financial situation and footing, but that was a concern we had going in, like, what happens? And then it just came back to, well, do you trust people to understand what 18 months mean? If you trust them to spend their money, you should trust them to understand how to leverage it. So, I mean, it's going to suck after 18 months is over, right? Like, I, like, <laughs> But... But I think I, I trust the folks and I trust my community. I know they're making the right decisions to position themselves to be better off because they had 18 months of a little fi- financial help.
1: And I'm Brian Anderson. You're listening to California Nation. Again, we're here with Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. I want to go into another problem potentially. There's You talked about a lack of trust that people have with giving people free money. There's that perception issue. But there's also, among the 125 people, a lack of trust in government. Historically and right now, I mean, you see a lot of people worried that qualitatively when they talk in interviews with you guys that the government's going to take this away or this program's not going to survive. So a lot of people are cashing out their money, so you can't really track the $500. What struggles have you experienced on, on that end with the lack of trust in government? Yeah,
2: I, I think from the, because the context well Stockton, uh, demographically, heavily immigrant community. A third of my community was born outside the United States, which means at least 50% of people are immigrants or have folks in their households, parents, etc., are Im- immigrants. And when we first announced the program it was at the same time with all these ice raids and all these ice scares, so a lot, it was hard to get people to trust to fill out the form and, and to say, um, and, to, and to sign up for the program. So that it was hard just,
1: to get people to sign up for a program for free, $500 yeah, a month? Yeah, people
2: thought it was a scam. People thought that it was a, a, a trick from ice. People thought being in the program would, sub- subject, would subject them to like ice raids and giving incriminating information. It was just, so we spent a lot of time just building trust with, with the community. And, and now I think, to your point about the withdrawals, it also does go back to lack of trust, and I think you should, we've seen what happened in Ontario, where they had a pilot going well, and then for political reasons, so the, the new governing party just stopped the pilot, not because it wasn't working, but because they were like, we don't want to do this anymore. Um, so I think, to your point about making it last out of 18 months, folks are being strategic and integrating into in their existing checking accounts, their existing savings accounts. And then also, a lot of people still use, like we still need cash, right? I know for me, when I get my haircut, I have to go to the bank or have someone go to the bank and get me cash so I can pay for my haircut, or if I'm tipping somebody, or if I'm giving them the tie to tie that church, or if we're if someone's paying their babysitter or, or loaning money to their family, because um, a lot of these folks are giving money to their family and stuff. So I think there's a variety of reasons why people um, are, are using the cash, but um, I think part of it does stem from a lack of trust in, in, in government and in, in surveillance.
1: Does that make it harder to research this?
2: I think it, it is a difficulty, but I would also say that if it was – 100% of things were tracked. I, that doesn't seem realistic to me e- either because I know I use my debit card to get cash. right? And if we are really trying to see how this impacts people, and not in the laboratory, but in the, in the real world, we have to account for the fact that folks, there's, we're not a cashless society. Like People have to get cash. People use cash. And I think part of what I'm excited about the researchers is that it's both quantitative and qualitative. So what we shared was just the first six months, and all we had time to release was the six months of just qualitative Quantitative things, excuse me, but the researchers are also doing some qualitative work where they're interviewing going people interviewing people every a, six months. Getting an understanding, like, what actually, what else, what, 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 is, what am I missing from looking at these debit card transactions? So right. I think between that we'll have maybe not a complete picture, but a fuller picture.
1: And I want to transition to the national conversation that's taken place uh, I can't believe we've gone this long without mentioning, mentioning Andrew Yang yet. <laughs> uh, he's a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. He's also appeared on this show, and his big pitch, universal basic income, he's calling for a $1,000 at a federal national level. Describe your, your views on universal basic income. This is your main sticking point, $4 trillion a year for the cost. Where is it coming from, and what is it?
0: Yeah, so it's a bit less than $4 trillion. It, it's, uh, the headline is about $3 trillion, um, but to... to Take a step back, yes, my flagship policy is the Freedom Dividend, which is something I've rebranded Universal Basic Income, and it's $1,000 per adult per month. Uh, it's like a dividend that we all get. And the first reaction to this people have is like, well, it's, you know, 3 or $4 trillion a year, it's too much. Um, for context, our economy is $20 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last um, 12 years. And the federal budget's four trillion. Give you some big numbers. Now the the fact is, it's not three trillion. It actually shrinks to more like one point eight trillion because we're already spending one point five trillion on various income support programs, primarily Social Security, but also uh, about one hundred twenty-six.
1: So some of this is pulled from existing resources.
0: Well, what happens is, if you guarantee every American adult thousand dollars a month, uh, and you say, "Hey, here's the new freedom dividend," but if you Take the Freedom Dividend, your foregoing benefits from various programs. Then people will look at it and say, okay, I like my programs because, you know, I'm getting 1400 bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, and then they don't take the Freedom Dividend, but then it doesn't cost $3 trillion. It costs $3 trillion less that 1000 of that person. Then you extrapolate that through the people that are on various programs. It ends up reducing the headline cost to closer to $1.8 because, again, we're spending so much money on various income support programs.
1: Are we there yet for this to be scaled out nationally, <laughs> or do you do you think he's jumping the gun? Uh,
2: no, I think it's a question of, of political will. The studies that have been done have shown that a guaranteed minimum income increases good things and decreases bad things. Also, <laughs>
1: there's also national will for universal background checks, but that can't get no, done. No, right? So, so,
2: it's really a question. It's really a, it's really a political question. I, I think the bigger question for me is kind of how and what right because i think basic income is so broad such a big tent people talk about it in many different ways and i know for me i talk about it in in vein of kind of the legacy of the civil rights movement and dr king this idea that in america every century we find a way to extend the social safety net we become better we understand better we could do more we do more for, for for our folks so i wouldn't be fav- in favor of any proposal that would replace the existing social safety net
1: and andrew yang's thousand dollars a month his appeal is Republicans will like it because if you want to get into this program, your benefits are cut, basically. But it's an opt-in on the average person, but they could be losing their federal benefits. So that's why Republicans will come along with this, is what he's saying. But in Stockton, this is supplementary.
2: Yeah, which is interesting to me because I know that Republicans are on aid too, like aid is not a partisan issue. Like Again, economic insecurity is is something that's both bipartisan. So I think it's good that he's elevating the conversation about the concept, I I do think, like everything else, but like with anything, there's different plans for how to get to universal healthcare, there's different plans for how to deal with climate resilience, so I think on on the same issue of basic income, economic insecurity, there'll be different plans, but I just know for me, I don't see how folks who are struggling enough to need assistance are better off by giving them $1,000 and take away the assistance they have. I think they would go further if we just act. Um, it'd be interactive. And there's concerns about cost, but Senator Harris with her Lift America Act has shown that for $2 trillion, um, it's the cost of the tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts. You can give every, fam- every, in the, every family with 100 care less $500 a month as a good start. Chris Hughes in his book *Fair Shots* talks about how, with a small financial transaction tax, you get a basic income to everybody making 50K or less. So that there's ways to get there um, without replacing the existing um, social safety And I think what's also interesting to me to this idea of trust is like who we trust. Because with the $2 trillion in tax cuts, I've not seen one subpoena, one inquiry, one evaluation of how that money was spent. I'm not seeing how folks, how how are folks who got these tax cuts, how are they benefiting the economy? How are they spending that money? Is it being invested in their workers? Is it being invested in research and development? Is it being invested back into the economy? Or is it all offshore in, in accounts or, or spent on things like yachts? And I think that's what's interesting to me is that we we give people money. And oftentimes we give rich people money or we give them access to keep their money. Um, and, 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 and there's no accountability. There's no, like, what, how is that money being spent? I'm going to track everything. So I think what's interesting to me is that in, in the first six months, we found that less than 2% of the money was spent on alcohol and drugs. And I go to a lot of events with a lot of my rich friends. And there's always a lot of wine. So I'm sure that it's, it's at least the same, if not a little bit higher, for, for, for folks mm-hmm. who, who have a lot of money.
1: But do you personally support Andrew Yang's proposal?
2: I support the conversation we're having about basic income. I, I don't support any proposal that would ex- that would gut the existing social safety net.
1: And you've endorsed Kamala Harris so far this year, or have you released an endorsement?
2: I haven't released an endorsement yet, but Cinder Harris is a, a, a mentor and dear friend.
1: And lastly, I just want to get into the politics of this universal basic income issue. Uh, because uh, I'm looking at a poll from NPR, PBS, Marist, and they surveyed Democrats or Democratic-leaning likely voters, and... Besides repealing Obamacare, this was the least popular idea. It was Andrew Yang's proposal more specifically, but it was 42 percent said that they support it. Forty-nine percent said they don't. And that's among Democrats. How are you going to convince Republicans to get on board with this proposal when there's struggles even with Democrats to get on board?
2: Well, I think it's what you're proposing, right? So I, I think I would be in the 42% that, this, that doesn't approve of a proposal that I would gut the existing social safety net. Um, I think that's what the, the power of this demonstration is. It's really focusing on, because if data moved policy, our world would just look different to your point about background checks. Like if data moved policy, we would have like a, just a, a different, more just world. It doesn't. We make decisions politically based, not on logic most of the time, but on emotions and feelings and kind of the popular ethos. So that's why we're leaning into the storytelling part and, like, illustrating who are these people? Who, who are we? And how is money being spent? How, how, how do we deserve this? And how do we make this part of a conversation of what it means to be American? And I think, for example, if you poll the people in Alaska who get the Alaskan Permanent Fund, which is a form of guaranteed income, $1,000 a year to every Alaskan man, woman, child, the number's like 95% approve and 5% disapprove. Um, and I think it's all in the mechanics of what it is and also um, how, how it's messaged. But I do think as time goes on and as we continue to see inequality, we are at the most unequal place we've been on the income and wealth since right before the Great Depression, since 1929. We have, again, folks working harder than ever and, f- and falling further behind that there's going to have to be a conversation. I think, particularly for the big things we do as a country, whether it's, it was granting me human and citizenship rights and saying, like, as a black person, you're actually a person. And you actually shouldn't be a slave. Or three-fifths of a person. And at one point, that was wildly unpopular. It was so unpopular, we had to go to war. And and, and, and there was bloodshed about that unpopular idea. And now, 300 years later, we're like, oh, duh, like, what, what were they thinking? I think in, in the same vein that it's anything that's really big and structural, and it kind of gets us to a more just... Um, Nation always starts off as unpopular and it's the work of leadership to kind of build consensus and to illustrate how it's not scary. It's not bad. It's not anti-American, but actually helps us further embody our values of life, liberty, and happiness. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: We appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me, brother.
1: And thank you for listening to California Nation. We'll be back in your feed in a couple weeks with a new episode. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That helps listeners like you find our show. For all the latest in California politics, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian R. Anderson. That's B-R-Y-A-N-R-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation. So who's on your list in 2020? Who do you like?
2: Um, I, 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 I'd like I'm Give a, us an endorsement right now
1: on this show.
2: I'll be making an endorsement um, <laughs> very soon.